Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. This is John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. It says, The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The word of God for the people of God. I had a conversation with a member of TRP this week who has been struggling with her faith. The impetus for this faith crisis was one of my sermons from a while back. It wasn't very dissimilar from other sermons that I have preached. In it, I confronted some of the difficulties in the Bible, and these difficulties called into question her view of what the Bible is and how the Bible works. And then very quickly, she found herself wrestling with questions that went far beyond what the Bible is to the very, uh, to the very core of faith itself, questions concerning God and the world and Jesus and redemption. Perhaps you have been there at some point in your faith journey. Your background and experience and past learning has helped to construct a box in which you can comfortably place your faith but then something challenges the integrity and the completeness of that box. Whether it's a sermon or a book or a conversation or much more likely a disappointment or difficult experience, perhaps it has been an unanswered prayer, the loss of a loved one. As a result, you begin to re-examine the structure of the box that has been created. And that re-examination is putting it mildly. For many of you, you freak out. You begin to wonder what else you have had wrong over the course of your life. You begin to question, perhaps, if any of it is true at all. I've been there. 
It can be an incredibly lonely and scary place to be because in many faith communities, you might not feel freedom to pursue some of these questions that you have, and instead you end up burying them down deep, ashamed to admit what is going on in your life. I hope that you do not feel that way here, and let me just implore you that this is a safe space for you to have these questions. You're often left on your own, however, or you feel as though you are on your own with no recourse of action and no one who understands and identifies with where you are. By the grace of God in my own life, I've kind of come through some of that uh, faith crises, if you will, and in hindsight, I believe that the process has been completely and utterly rewarding. It has shaped who I am and how I think and how I believe and how I follow Jesus. In fact, for many of us, as I look around the room knowing some of your stories, I know that you too have had these, these moments of existential crisis and questions and it has been a key to your continued growth and your shaping. Because at the core, if we aren't intellectually honest with ourselves, and if we don't pursue the questions that we may or may not have, then who are we and what are we doing? For many in this community, instead, this is gonna sound super pejorative and I don't mean it this way, but instead of burying our head in the metaphorical sand, we pursue these questions and we wrestle with who God is and what the Bible is, and how to explore the issues of faith. And I wanna pull back the curtain a little bit for you this evening because whenever I preach, I have these people and circumstances like this in my mind. Whatever text we're looking at, whether it's from the book of John or Hosea or Colossians way back in the early days, I want to address the questions that you might have. My background is in education, and one of the things that they tell you to do when you're scripting out lesson plans is to anticipate the questions. You might even want to write them in your lesson plans and the answers that you might give. And whenever I'm teaching a difficult text, I want to address those, those wanderings of your mind where you might go. I want you to know that I'm aware of what you might be thinking or wondering or questioning and that it's okay for you to go down that path. For many of you, we would not be doing you any favors whatsoever by reducing the complexity of our faith to spiritual platitudes, to the phrases that we see on coffee mugs and t-shirts as cool as they are. We wouldn't be doing you any favors. Those platitudes, they feel great in the moment. They energize us for the week. And in other conversations uh, or in other communities, not ours, they might even inspire an amen or a preach or a, some sort of interaction with you guys. We are not really the interactive crowd. You guys like to sit and stare and make me feel uncomfortable. Uh, if there is ever a moment in which uh, I say something that resonates with you, feel free to say amen or good, good, good on you, sir, nice job. <laughs> whatever comes to your mind and whatever is consistent with who you are, um, you know that life doesn't always work out how these spiritual platitudes sound. It doesn't always seem like everything works out for a reason. It doesn't seem sometimes like God is in control. It doesn't feel as though we are soaring on wings of eagles. And because of your experience, sometimes you need a more honest approach to the Bible and to faith. 
I also know, however, that there's, there's other people in this space this evening. People who just want to be with their community. They just want to come and they want to see the people that give them life and, and hope and, and encourage them along the way. They want to come here and leave energized and ready to face whatever tasks you have before you in the week to come. Especially on a Sunday evening, you want to turn around and be able to wake up ready to face the week ahead. On a deeper level, there may be some of you that are here, maybe even tonight, and you're nursing real wounds, real hurts. You have real baggage. You have real experiences of shame. And I get it. You don't need a lecture. You don't need more questions. You don't need an induced faith crisis inspired by some of my teachings. What you need is hope. What you need is healing. What you need is Jesus and his presence and the assurance that we are his. I know that we're kind of, we're kind of slowly walking our way into some of these spiritual practices, but if you can buy into it, how good is that antiphonal refrain after the reading of that passage from, from Isaiah? We need to be reminded that like clay in the hands of the potter, so are we in the hands of our God. I know that both of these types of people exist in this space, and perhaps sometimes I think that there's many more skeptics and doubters than there actually are, but I know that there are people from different places that, that are here. So when I read the story of the calling of the first disciples in the book of John, I'm immediately pulled into two completely different directions. For the sake of your very tired very worn out, very overworked, hurting, fearful souls. I want to give you Jesus. I want you to be reminded of his goodness, of his care and compassion, of his solidarity in that he knows where you are and that he has experienced the things that you have experienced, namely rejection and hurt and pain. I want us to be reminded of the hope that is ours in abundance because of what he has done when we, when we turn and we follow him. But also for the sake of your seeking and questioning and skeptical minds, your very rational, very intelligent and very thoughtful and inquisitive minds, I want to give you Jesus through an honest reading of the Bible. The platitudes, I think, they mean more when you set the text into its proper context. I was blown away yesterday. I went to a funeral, and the minister, before he just read through all of these passages of Scripture, this is the first time I've ever seen this done. I was so amazed and so humbled and so thankful. He said, before we get into this reading, let me tell you what is going on in this passage so that you might have a, have a connection with it. And over these five texts that are often read at funerals, he first set the frame and set the context so that we could interpret scripture well together. For him, the platitudes were not enough. So tonight I've got two distinct trajectories in which we will travel, but I believe that the two reunite at the end, okay? So we're going to start with the nerd stuff, we're going to start with the skeptics, we're going to start with the doubters, we're going to start with the highly intellectual people that have some questions and have some thoughts, and when you hear a text like this from the book of John, you might not be feeling it yet. But if you were left on your own and you started to read through your New Testament, you might have questions that I would like to address 
preemptively before you even begin to know that they're there or ask them yourself. Can I get an amen? amen. I hope that's something that excites us. We'll, we'll see. I guess the proof will be in the pudding. In the book of John, the story of the calling of Jesus' first disciples is very different from the synoptics. The synoptics is a big word. I use it a lot. I want you to know it. I want you to commit it to memory. The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John is very different in his presentation of the gospel than Matthew and Mark and Luke. And only four weeks into this sermon series, we have already trod down this road where you have heard me say this a few times. John is very different. He provides a unique retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is why the Synoptic Gospels are named the Synoptic Gospels, because they are similar in their approach. And John is just crazy. He is out there on his own. And sometimes John makes the reader make decisions about what it is they're going to glean from the passage, not just in terms of application, but how they are to understand the passage in light of the larger story. So for example, the text that we looked at this evening, what we see is John the Baptist who has disciples. These disciples eventually become Jesus' own disciples, disciples that we know, his core four, if you will. In the first scene, we meet Andrew and an unnamed disciple, which is very weird, very interesting to ponder. Scholars have spilled a lot of ink wondering who this unnamed disciple is. Some people think it's the person that wrote the book of John. Some people think it is John, the son of Zebedee. Some people think that it's um, different. Uh, some people think it's Nathaniel. We'll see him later on. Or Philip, I believe, is, is another one that's thrown out there. But we see John talking to his disciples and he says, look, the Lamb of God. And it's at that utterance that these people feel intrigued and they begin to follow Jesus. This text in John is, is overt in how important it is for these two gentlemen to follow Jesus. The verb is used three times in a matter of only a handful of verses. They're following after Jesus when Jesus sees them following after him. Later, uh, when, when Peter, I believe, has seen that they are following Jesus, this term keeps coming up. It's, it's indicative of what a disciple does, but these two, they go after Jesus. They're following after Jesus, and Jesus turns and says, what do you want? I love how scripture leaves ambiguous the tone in which Jesus is speaking. Whenever you send a text message, the recipient of that text message has to infer your tone. And I don't know about you, but I get hammered a lot on my implied tone in my text messages. And I usually try to put a smiley emoji in there just to make sure that people know, I'm not mad at you, see, I'm smiling. But Jesus says, what do you want? You can hear that in a couple of different ways. You can hear it like I might say it early in the morning, what do you want? You might hear it in another way, like, what do you want? How can I help you? I don't know how you hear that, but Jesus responds. His first spoken words in the gospel are a question to these two people, Andrew and an unnamed disciple. What is it that you want? And they respond by saying, where are you staying? Come and see. 
The story in the book of John, it's, it's uh, enigmatic. There's lots of ways in which you can think about this. We'll discuss it later. But when you compare that story to the story in Matthew and Mark and Luke, it's very different. And for some people, particularly the church crowd, where the box in which you understand faith, it doesn't allow for there to be any sort of discrepancies or any sort of differences between these stories. And I know that as I'm speaking this right now, this side of the aisle might not care about that. This side of the aisle, though, I bet they do. There's a difference in how we have grown up thinking about Scripture and how other people have thought about Scripture. It's amazing in the conversations that I have where the 25 and unders, they don't care about this kind of stuff, like the differences in the Bible and the potential. I'm going to say a word that you're not going to like. It's going to push some buttons. I'm going to get some emails about it. I'm probably not because you guys don't send emails. I just wish that you would. Errors? Discrepancies? Contradictions? There's ways in which we were not taught to think about the Bible, but they are there. So in Matthew, I'm just going to read Matthew because Matthew and Mark is basically the same story. In Matthew chapter 4, it says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he sees two brothers. It's Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. Not the same two characters in the first scene in the book of John. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And Jesus says, Come, follow me. He puts the onus on them to come and follow him. And then he continues on and says, I will make you uh, fishers of men, or I will send you out to fish for people. Totally gets lost in our context. We have no idea what's going on there. We have no idea what that means. But yet we talk about it quite often. At once it says they leave their nets and they follow him because Jesus has said to them while they're in the midst of their work, hey, I want you and I want you. Come and follow me. And they drop everything and they go. Going on from there, he sees two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee. They were preparing their nets. They were also fishermen, but in distinction from Andrew and Peter, they're actually, their operation has boats involved, and they're out on the water, and they're dropping their nets, and Jesus calls to them, and immediately it says they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Jesus is the initiator in this passage, both here in Matthew and in Mark. He sees the people that he wants, and he says, you you follow me, you, you follow me. Based on what? Why? The gospels are so cool, man, because it leaves you so much to ponder and to think about. Now, Luke's a bit weirder. He has a similar story, but he adds to it. In fact, before the calling of the first disciples, he actually uh, moves the story of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law, who was sick with a fever, I believe, and moves it to before this passage so that it makes sense that he's seeing Peter and talking to Peter and calling to Peter to do something. And Peter is responding because in the narrative, according to Luke, he already knows Jesus because Jesus has already healed his mother. In Matthew and Mark, that is not the case. It says, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him, listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon or Peter, and asked him to put it out a little bit from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Remember, there's a backstory here in the book of Luke. Jesus knows Peter. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon or to Peter, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. This is the story where they've been fishing all night. They're tired. They haven't caught anything. Jesus says, put out the boats. Man, I got a plan. Gosh, we've been out all night. We don't want to do this. 
When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break, so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and to help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. Then Jesus says to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. These are different stories. And for some readers, the discrepancies, they don't fit into your view of the Bible, so you attempt to harmonize all of them. That's a fancy word that means you attempt to make all four of them say the same thing and not to disagree with one another. One scholar named Raymond Brown, he summarizes, the standard harmonization is that Jesus first calls the disciples as he does in the book of John, but that they subsequently returned to their normal life. So we have Andrew and this unnamed person, and they're following Jesus, trying to figure out what's going on. And Jesus says, come on and see. I'll show you what's up. And then after that whole interchange, they go back and they fish. And then Jesus shows up and says, remember me? You and you. You're coming with me. Remember me? You and you. You're coming with me. There's a background to this story. But as Brown goes on to note, this interpretation goes considerably beyond the evidence of the Gospels themselves. And in my best assessment of what's going on here, a reading that aims to minimize the differences, and I'm just going to talk to this side over here because I think you might care about this a little bit more than they do. A reading that attempts to minimize the differences in the gospel is often fueled primarily by an underlying worry about the integrity of your box that you have inherited, that has taught you what the Bible is, how it works, what you can expect from it, and what it is to do for you in your life. The differences in these stories, they don't fit together, so we make them fit or else the whole thing, our entire faith, breaks apart like driftwood smashed upon the rocks of the shore. Is that dramatic enough for you? But I'm back in Rise Up and I'm sitting across from someone that I care about and she says, I don't know what to do with the stuff that you've been saying And I think to myself, there's one trajectory in which I want to address these things because I don't want you finding out on your own. I want these to be the things that we discuss together. It's often forgotten. And just to be clear, I can't make all this nice and neat for you, especially for the folks on this side of the room. We've got four different stories and they have different things going on there, but I'm gonna try a little bit. It's often forgotten that the differences between the gospels, they weren't troublesome to the early church, or at least they weren't as troublesome as they might be for us. And perhaps the most compelling piece of evidence is the fact that in our very Bibles, we have Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and they don't always tell the story in the same way, yet the people who were putting this Bible together said, I like it. They had read these stories before. They had noted the differences before, but they say these are the stories that are giving us an image of who Jesus is, of his life, his death, and his resurrection. These are the stories that can teach us about life and godliness. These are the stories that tell us who Jesus is, even though, or maybe even because... They're different. In our study of the book of John, it's been clear that the author is shaping his account according to a theological agenda 
And I don't want you to co-opt that word because it's a good word. An agenda does not have to be destructive. It does not have to be negative. What the author of the book of John is attempting to do is focus on the theological beauty that we can receive when we understand who Jesus is and who we are called to be in response. Again, Raymond Brown, he rightly notes that this theological interest, it underlies the passage that we've looked at tonight. And he says that the story of the first disciples in the book of John has been reorganized under theological orientation. The author, in other words, is attempting to teach us something, not just record facts. And when we expect the Bible to behave in the ways that our 21st century American westernized views demand, we're going to be sorely disappointed because this is an ancient text. And now I want to be very clear here because unless you go off in a different direction, the Bible does provide us with historical facts. The Bible does provide us with the truths of things that have happened in history. It's, it's not as if we are unable to glean historical information from the Bible. It can be historical, and we do glean historical information from it. In this case, however, it just means that the boxes of the ancient authors and their readers did not threaten to break apart because of the discrepancies in these stories. For the author of John, the calling of Jesus' first disciples, it's theologically motivated, and it's meant to teach us about the Christian vocation. Okay, nerds, you've had your fun. Now we're going to try to tie this, this together. What this text is attempting to tell us is, who do we follow, and how do we follow him? In John's retelling of the narrative of John the Baptist, he points out Jesus to two of his disciples, and he says, look, the Lamb of God, and this inspires them to go after Jesus. It's strange because it, it says that Jesus, uh, he discovers them behind him almost. It's like he looks over his shoulder and sees them following him and wonders what these two weirdos are up to in this story. And upon seeing them, Jesus says, what do you want? Literally, you could translate that, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? And these are the first words that Jesus, is, that Jesus utters in the gospel. His question is asking for more than the reasons why they are following him. It goes much deeper. It goes to their very soul. Jesus isn't just asking this question for his own benefit. In the book of John, Jesus knows people. He perceives their wants and their desires. Jesus doesn't need to say, what do you want, as if to gain new information in the book of John. He oftentimes already knows these things. It's fair to say that in this book, Jesus knows the answer to this question as it pertains to, to these two followers. He's asking so that they might admit it to themselves or admit it out loud to him. What do you want? What are you seeking? Another scholar, Marianne May Thompson, says that Jesus is urging them to move from sight to insight. What are you seeking? Tell me. What is it that I can do for you? Rudolf Baltmann says, it is the first question which must be addressed to anyone who comes to Jesus, the first thing about which he must be clear, John isn't just recording facts of history. He isn't just giving us a record of events. This is theologically shaped. It's theologically motivated. It's meant to move readers to belief. So Boltman notes that Jesus's question is asked of us tonight as well. What do you want? What are you seeking? 
I'm back at Rise Up and I'm having an iced caramel latte, which some of you could use for the caffeine this evening. I got you. It's all right. You guys voted to go decaf. Can't help you there. I don't know. We'll have some lemonade maybe. I'm sitting at Rise Up and I'm having this very nice, it might have been, been a cortado. I don't know. Depending on how fancy I was feeling that day. You know, sometimes, Billy, it makes me feel good to have that little saucer and the little cup. I mean, super pretentious and I just, you know, I've earned my space there for a few hours and drinking the cortado. But I'm sitting across from this person what do you want? What are you seeking? Certainty. I'm seeking answers. I'm seeking to have no more doubts. I'm seeking to have all of my questions asked and answered. I'm seeking to have all of these things that I don't know anymore be proven to be true so that I can go back to the way that it was. I'm seeking to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I'm seeking certainty. Some of you, you're seeking something different. You're seeking experiences. For, for a while, your faith has felt dry. It has felt shallow. It's felt empty. When you pray, it, it seems like you're talking into space. When you sing, you wonder what in the world's going on. When you look across the aisle and see somebody raising their hands or closing their eyes, you think, why can't I have some of that? Why can't I feel some of that? When you, when you go to these prayer practices, they just feel dry and they feel dusty and they feel old. And you're longing for an experience to prove to you that Jesus is who he says he is or at least that he is who we think that he is. Some of you, you're seeking reparation. Something has gone terribly wrong in your life. A person that you have prayed for time and time again has not been healed. The person that you thought was your friend has rejected you and you think God is involved in that and you're seeking reparation. You're seeking that something will be made right that Jesus will show that he cares for you by showing up in a way where you can actually tangibly, maybe even physically, understand that it is him. You might just be, speak, uh, be seeking a response. It's, it's, it's aligned with this. When, again, when you pray, you want to hear. You want to experience. You want to feel. Because for years, you haven't felt anything. You had a moment, but now you're just in the daily grind and you're working, you got kids, you're caring for them, life is hard and you are tired and you just want to feel again. Some of you want wholeness. You want healing. You want presence. Maybe you want clarity. Maybe you want purpose. Maybe you want vision. Maybe you want forgiveness because there's certain things that you can't forgive yourself of and you can't believe that Jesus would forgive you either. And when he says to you, what do you seek? The only thing that you can utter through the tear-stained cheeks is just forgive me. I'm so sorry for everything. Perhaps tonight, it's time that we, like Andrew and the unnamed disciples, we begin moving from sight to insight to announce honestly what we're seeking what we need, that we allow Jesus to address us and to meet our needs because I know as much as I'm standing right here that tonight some of you are not answering that question anymore. You used to, but then you got jaded and then you got callous and then you just kind of moved away and now you're still here because this is the routine of life and you're here because your friends might be here and you just haven't, this is what you do. But if you were honestly looking at yourself in the mirror and the question comes to you, what is it that you want or that you need, you might not be able to utter it because of years of perceived silence. 
This, I think, it adequately envelops any sort of listener, the jaded doubter, the cynic, the skeptic, the person who's just trying to make it through the week, the person who is nursing real hurts and real wounds, the person whose life is actually going well. Your fantasy teams are, are doing well today. I mean, I don't know if you're checking them, but I mean, you got those people and they're just blowing up right now. You've got you know, some, some good sports results. You've got some good school stuff happening. I'm playing Kate tonight. She's giving me a knowing look like, yeah, my fantasy team's doing real good tonight. They're beating you. I don't want to talk about that right now. Perhaps more substantively, like your, your marriage is good, your life is good, your school is good. And it's not this faith crisis that I'm painting it to be, but maybe you even still, you don't know how to answer that question. What do I want? What do I need? Well, I don't really need anything right now, Jesus. I'm good. Jesus says, what do you seek? We're nearing the conclusion here. In the story, Andrew and this unnamed disciple, they respond by asking Jesus where he's staying. It's sort of a dodge. What do you want? Uh, where are you staying tonight, man? It's not, they're not getting deep on, on the road here. They're not just rolling up and following him and saying, I want something super, super deep and, and personal. They're not going there. They just want to know, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and see. It's an invitation. One New Testament scholar, Craig Keener, says that uh, this is a sufficiently low-key response from Jesus, but it's pregnant. One of my favorite descriptors. It's pregnant with theological nuance. In rabbinic language, this phrase, come and see, it's used often, and it's applied to many different examples, and it can mean something like, come and reflect on this. Come and think about this. Come and set your mind on this. In the parlance of our time, it might be, hey, check this out. Let me show you what I got. Jesus invites these potential disciples to come and see, to stay with him, to see where he dwells, to see who he is, and to remain there. This is a theologically loaded term in the book of John. He is inviting them, in other words, to become his followers, to leave all behind, to pledge their allegiance to him, to commit themselves to a life that will see and reflect and consider from here on out. Marianne May Thompson says that Jesus is inviting them not only to follow him and see what he will do, but also to discern in his acts just who he is and thus to believe and follow on the path of discipleship. Something must have happened in the course of this conversation from the where are you staying to the come and see to the next day when Andrew goes to tell Peter, we found him. We found the Messiah. John doesn't tell us what the conversation entails. It just tells us about their conclusion. I believe that when we provide Jesus with the opportunity, he will meet us where we are. I believe that when we are honest about where we are, he will respond in a way that is both sensitive and compelling. Jesus in this passage says, come and see. And I believe that he says the same thing to us tonight. What is it that you need? What is it that you are seeking? And Jesus invites us to allow him to be part of that discussion and almost pushes us that we might reflect and consider and see 
the goodness of our God. Tonight, how I want to end is I just want to give you guys a moment. Let's do this. Let's go old school. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. I'm not going to ask you for a hand, okay? Let's just get that out of our heads. The altar's not going to be wide open. I mean, it is if you want it, but that's not, not the point here. I just want you, as you sit here this evening, to imagine yourself for a moment following after Jesus. Whatever that looks like for you in your mind's eye, you are, you are attempting to reach out to Jesus. You are following him to see where it is that he is going. And while you don't really expect it, he turns and he says to you, what do you want? What are you seeking? What is it that you are looking for as you follow me? I want to invite you into that moment and into, into that conversation over the next little bit as we uh, just enter into this silence and to have that conversation with Jesus here and now. What is it that you want? In the text, Jesus responds to his questioners, come and see. This evening, it is my prayer and my hope that we too will respond with honesty and that Jesus will prove himself to be faithful and good to us. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.